Live from the rooftop of the Herman London Real Estate Group in beautiful downtown Maplewood, it's the St. Louis Realtor Podcast with your host, Adam Cruz. Welcome, welcome to the St. Louis Realtor Podcast. Today is episode 16 and we are excited because we've got a special topic today which is going to be all about self-directed IRAs. So we'll jump into that in a minute. I wanted to give a couple updates on things we've got going on. I'm working on a wholesale deal, my first wholesale deal. We've had Jeff Merkel and Darren Hefkin on the show in the past and they kind of got me excited about wholesale deals. So I've got one that I've got under contract I guess I won't reveal numbers on this one until the deal's closed, but I've got it under contract, and then I've got someone who's buying it from me the very same day for a couple thousand dollars more. So I'm excited about that. I'll talk more about it once it's closed. I talk a lot about buying duplexes and the numbers for that, and uh, we're actually going to go have a show in the future where I go through in more detail the numbers of a cash-flowing property, but uh, I was excited that I found a duplex for sale. Unfortunately, they were asking 135 and I offered 85 so I don't know if I'm going to get the deal or not. It's actually... I'm actually offering a fair price. I think they're asking an unfair price. I'll keep you in the loop uh, if that deal goes on or other duplexes, multifamily properties we look to buy. Uh, we're excited. I met with another investor slash realtor today who's considering joining Herman London. That we know we always like to get a good mix of different realtors working here and different uh, skill sets and parts of town they cover and types of deals they're experts in. So. We're excited about that. New Realtor. Uh, oh, we, we've got, you know, everyone knows our producer, Joey Vosovich, in the studio with us. But I wanted to encourage you to check out some of the great videos that Joey has been making on our YouTube channel. And uh, he made one about Lindenwood. We've started a whole new Frequently Asked Questions part, like a video segment. And so check out some of those videos. And also, lastly, I just wanted to mention that it's kind of a weird thing going on where our listings most of the listings that we have are actually selling typically as realtors we like to have an inventory of listings and our inventory is dwindling because everyone's buying them off so if you or someone you know wants to sell their property please have them give me a call 314-210-5115 and uh, of course if you know anyone that wants to buy too we'd love them to call us but right now we're definitely wanting more listings because they're all selling so uh thanks for that but i'm going to jump right into it now we have two very special guests in our studios today and uh one is my father larry cruz and the second is patrick hagan with interest group and so i just wanted to introduce larry hi larry good afternoon adam <laughs> or dad whatever i'll call you and uh, I just want to tell the reason why I wanted you to be on the show today is because you're kind of what I consider my financial advisor. And obviously, you're very financially savvy with your background in accounting. But many people might know now you're a realtor, but uh, you're the one who sort of introduced me to self-directed IRA. So I wanted you to be on the show to help us ask lots of informative and interesting questions of Patrick Hagan. So Patrick, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. And thanks for coming on the show today. So you work for a company called the Interest Group? I do. I've been with them for uh, about 11 years. And so just kind of what is the Interest Group? We're a niche business in the retirement plan space where we, we specialize in what's called self-directed retirement plans. Okay. We hold assets that other companies that do IRAs and 401ks generally won't hold, uh, namely things like real estate, private placements, private notes, precious metals. So these are things that the IRS deems allowable, but that you generally can't do through your standard bank or brokerage company. So it's a niche that we have been doing for about 33 years. I think that answered all my questions. Okay. <laughs> so basically you're saying the typical IRA is people just putting money into it. 
but you guys do a different kind of IRA where it could be things that have value but are not just cash. Yeah, an IRA is an IRA, whether it's with us or with Morgan Stanley, Smith Barney, Merrill Lynch, whomever it happens to be with. The difference with us is that we give our clients the ability to self-direct their own money. So instead of taking their money and investing it for them and putting it into some products that we feel they should invest in, we basically just say, you can do whatever the IRS allows and we will facilitate it. So typically people come to us when they already know what they want to do. And typically that's on an alternative investment, like a property or a duplex or something like that. And we provide custodianship to that asset. So it's still an IRA. It still is governed by the same rules that any IRA provider works by. The difference is the flexibility of the institution. Uh, when you look at the, the limitations that most people have, it's not IRS limitations. It's institutional limitations. The institution that they have the retirement plan with won't allow them to buy real estate. So you just have to find an institution that you can work with that will allow it. And that's what we've been doing for about 33 years. Okay. And I guess a lot of people don't necessarily know what this is. Even myself, I've gotten a little bit confused about it. I, I've i talked to other financial planners and I think I, when I'm trying to talk to them about it, I keep calling it a SEP. And that's totally different, right? Well, a SEP is a type of IRA. So uh -huh. uh, self-directed is a descriptive term. Any type of IRA can be self-directed. It could be a traditional, a Roth, SEP. Simple. Those are all IRA types. So you're, you being self-employed, you probably have a SEP IRA. Somebody that works for a company may have a traditional or a Roth IRA. Um, so the self-directed piece is more describing the way that the account is administered and less more about the type of account. But you could have a SEP with a brokerage firm or you could have a SEP with us. The difference with us, again, is that you could buy physical property as opposed to just your standard stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. So do people start with cash and then they put their cash into the investment with you and then they take the cash out? Or Yeah. So let me just kind of give a scenario on how this would potentially work. Say you have an investor that has $200,000 in an IRA with the brokerage firm and they find that you know $85,000 duplex they want to purchase. So they would set up an account with us, do an IRA to IRA transfer of the $85,000. Transferred away from their Edward Jones account Exactly. Or and that's just done with some paperwork that they submit to us. We sign it, say, send it to the provider. Within a couple of days, they'll send the money over to us. So now the account with us has cash, and the client goes and directs us to get involved in the facilitation of that purchase for their IRA. So the client determines what they buy, what they pay, who they work with, who's closing it. All that's determined by the client. We basically just sign off on behalf of the IRA. We're the required middleman in the equation. And, and that the term for that is administrator or custodian. Someone has to custody the asset. In our case, we're doing that without telling the client what to do with their money. If this guy that we're talking about has $200,000 cash, then would he put it into the self-directed IRA and then buy real estate? Or is it more people who have a $200,000 Roth IRA already that are switching it to a self-directed? Yeah, so that's a good question. Most of our clients have existing retirement plan money, right? So they have money that they've built up over the years, either through a job with a 401k or they've just been tucking away money in an IRA or a Roth or a SEP, and they move a portion of that over to us. Okay. Uh, is you, that a tax event if, when no. they move it? Great question. No, it's not a tax event. It's no different than moving money from Fidelity to Vanguard. It's just moving from IRA to IRA. Uh, you're not limited in the number of times you can do it, and it's not reportable or taxable. You're just shifting money from company A to company yeah. B. In this case, company B is us, and we hold real estate, whereas company A probably won't. When you say a tax event, you mean a taxable event? Ta right. right. If you move that 100000 over, 
uh, when you pull it out of the one IRA to to this to the uh, self-directed, does it become taxable? And the, the key there, and I think the easiest way to explain it, is you're still working under the umbrella of the IRA. So everything's transpiring within the IRA. It would only be taxable if you took the money out of the IRA, which is not what we're talking about here. If you went and pulled the money out of the IRA and bought real estate, then you're looking at a taxable event. But if you keep it in the IRA and shift it from company A to company B, with company B being in trust, then you can hold that real estate, keep it all tax deferred. So really... Functionally, it's no different than buying a stock within an IRA. It's just an alternative asset class. Which it makes sense that they don't want to be taxed on it because that's the whole reason they put it in their IRA in the first place, right? Right. The whole point of retirement plan investing is that you can make investments tax-deferred or in some cases with a Roth IRA tax-free. So that's going to be true whether you're buying mutual funds or buying real estate. The difference here with us is that a lot of our clients know and understand real estate. They believe in real estate. They like the fact that it's not tied to the market. Uh, by, by that, I mean the stock market. And they, they like the fact that they can see it. You know, that duplex you were talking about, you could drive by. You could kick the side of the building if you want to. You right. can physically see it. Uh, with a mutual fund, you know, there's a lot of stuff wrapped in there and you got somebody on Wall Street managing it. Some people like that and understand that world. Some people don't. The clients that come to interest typically already know how to do real estate. They just need someone to partner with to do it through an IRA. The other thing I was wondering about, so this would be most attractive to someone who is under that 70 and a half threshold age-wise because at 70 and a half, you have to take, you know, a proportion of your IRA out. Yeah. A couple of points on that. I mean, generally people get around that 70 and a half age. They're looking for a little more liquidity anyways. So, you know, tying it up in a brick and mortar property may not be the best thing for their planning. Uh, there's nothing wrong with buying real estate in an IRA if you're over 70 and a half. You just have to plan ahead. You need to make sure that you have enough liquidity somewhere to take those RMD requirements. Uh, so it could be that client has half a million dollars in a brokerage account and has 50000 with us. Well, in that case, they can leave the 50000 intact and take their distribution from the other account. But I suppose if you're approaching 70 and a half and you're looking to put all your money into a self-directed IRA, it's definitely a good idea to leave some money on the sideline because if you don't take the RMD, you get taxed pretty heavily on that and you don't want to get into that What's R&D? R&D, Required Minimum Distribution. Okay. Essentially, with a pre-tax IRA, anything other than a Roth, uh, the IRS picks an arbitrary age when you have to start pulling money out, and that age is 70 and a half. So basically, they say, this is all tax-deferred. It's growing tax-deferred your entire life. At 70 and a half, we want you to start taking the money out because when you take the money out, that's when you pay Uncle Sam the tax bills. So even once you're, even if you're 70 years old. Even at any, at any age when you take money out, you're going to pay taxes unless it's a Roth. The, the Roth, Roth IRA, which came out in 98, is kind of the, it's the inverse of the traditional IRA. With the Roth IRA, you're looking at post-tax dollars that go in and it grows tax-free. So with the Roth, you don't have to take RMDs and you don't have to pay taxes on the growth of that investment. So you okay. can think of it with a traditional being tax-deferred, with a Roth, if it's qualified, would be tax-free growth. So if I, as a realtor, if let's say I sell a house and I just make, I make $1,000, right? Yeah. If I wanted to put it into a Roth, I would pay the government probably $300 and I'd put 700 into my Roth. Yes. And- With the Roth IRA, you're capped out at $5,500 a year. Unless you're uh-huh. over the age of 50, you can put in an additional 1000 But that's money that's after tax. That's net take-home pay that you're putting into your Roth IRA. So if I want to put in $5,000 to my Roth, it doesn't come out before taxes. It comes out after taxes. Uh I get paid my salary 
that's already taxed, and then I put that money into a Roth IRA. But once it's in there, then it grows tax-free, and it's taken out tax-free as long as I'm 59 and a half when I pull the money out. But if I made that same $1,000, I could give interest or you that $1,000 and do whatever I want with it and buy real estate and all that stuff. And then when I eventually want to take money out of my self-directed IRA, that's when I pay taxes on it? Correct. If it's a traditional account, that's kind of the standard model. Back in 74, when they created these IRAs, the idea was, well, first off, they were trying to supplement pensions because they realized that companies were moving away from pensions. So they came up with IRAs, which was an incentive for people to set aside money for themselves to live off of. And so they gave some tax advantages when you put the money in, it grows tax deferred. The thought being when you retire, you're in a lower tax bracket. At that point, you pull the money out. It's, it's cheaper to pay the uh-huh. tax bill there. But then uh, the Roth came out in 98 and that was kind of a game changer because then it's it's literally one of the only ways to buy real estate tax-free. I mean, Jenny, the Roth? Yeah, with a Roth IRA. I mean, if you're buying a property through a Roth IRA and you have a return on that investment, as long as that money's flowing back to the Roth, you're never going to pay taxes on that. Oh, you can have a self-directed Roth. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, a good chunk of our clients have Roth IRAs. So if you have a rental property, say it kicks off, I'll keep the math simple, a 1000 bucks a month in net income, that's $12,000 a year that if you did it outside of the IRA would be taxable. If you did it in a traditional IRA would be deferred. In a Roth IRA, that's 12000 of free income that's coming into your IRA. There's not a limit to what you can put in your Roth? There's a limit to what you can add to it. There's not a limit to what you can do with it once it's in there. So, so if I had that $12,000, I could only put 5500 Oh, you're saying that's already money that was in my IRA. It's already in there, right. So you could have millions of dollars in your IRA if you've grown that over time. You're only allowed to add 5500 per year. But you can grow what's in there as much as you can. So if you make an investment that grows $12,000 a year in income, that's fine. That can flow back to the IRA account. Just like if you bought a stock, you know, if you bought an index fund in 2009 and sold it today, you would make money. You know, that that's mm-hmm. fine to make money within an IRA. You're just capped at what you can add to it each year. And you have to keep all that money in the IRA. You will want to keep it all in the IRA. Once you reach 59 and a half, if you want to pull it out, you can. Um without paying a penalty. But generally speaking, people invest in their IRA to continue investing in their IRA, whether that's to continue investing in real estate and do multiple deals, or whether it's to do one or two deals with us and then get it back to their brokerage account and put it back in the market. But yeah, generally you'd keep it under that umbrella of the IRA until you needed the money at some later point in life. Or what percentage of them are Roths versus? Kind of pulling this out of my ears here, but I'd say somewhere in the range of about 40% of our accounts are Roth. Roth. Yeah, and that's increasing. Um, what really impacted that was 2010, they lifted the income limit for Roth conversions. So prior to 2010, if you made more than 100000 you weren't eligible to turn a traditional into a Roth. It's called a conversion. They lifted that in 2010, and so anybody can convert regardless of their income. So we saw a lot of people that historically make a lot of money that wanted to be in a Roth that couldn't because of the income limitations get into a Roth IRA. So we've seen a real influx of Roth accounts. And I would say right now, probably about 40% of our account holders are Roth. The other 60% make up some kind of pre-tax account, whether that's a traditional or a SEP or some kind of qualified money. But yeah. If I called you and I said, hey, I want to invest 10,000 with you per year, would you say, okay, let's put the first 5500 in a Roth and the other 4500 in something else, or regular self-directed? You know, 
we, what we would be able to do uh, this kind of bring up a wrap in a different point here. <clears throat> we're not a financial advisory firm. We're not a fiduciary in a relationship. So we're basically what I, I kind of jokingly say, we're educated order takers. Okay. You're going to tell us what to do. We're going to do what you tell us to do because you told us to do it. Uh-huh. Uh, if you ask me what the contribution limit is and how that works, I'd more than happy to answer any questions. If you call me up and say, what do you think I should do with this money or how much should I contribute or what chunk so of money should I move over? Else. Yeah, call somebody else. But that, you know, frankly, it, it very rarely happens. By the time they get to us, they already know what they want to do. So um, you deal with pretty much informed investors. I yeah, guess. my average prospect call is somebody that calls me up and says, you know, I heard about what you guys do. I love the idea of buying real estate with an IRA. My money's out at company A. I want to move it over to you to do this deal. I've already found the deal or I've got my eye on a deal. So it, it's a lot more transactional than it is, you know, sitting down talking about a five-year plan and putting, you know, together thoughts. It, it's more of a, how can we get from where you are now to where you want to be, which is owning and holding real estate within your IRA. Okay. Now I have a question that it, someone pre-asked me to ask you. Okay? okay. Mark asked me to ask you this question and it actually leads into some of the other questions I have for you, but actually, I think before I ask the question, I have to give a little pre-story, right? right? One of our realtors, Darren, he's an investor here, Darren Hefkin. He, I guess, borrows money from people okay. and then he you know, uses their money to purchase real estate. Okay. And then he gives them a return, like they have an agreed upon percentage right, that he gives them. And so when I last met with Darren and was talking to him, He's now, you know, he used to, I guess, just be looking for the rich guy that had a million dollars sitting around that would loan him. But now he's looking for people who have money in their IRAs. I guess they could put it into a self-directed IRA that will loan him the money and then he'll use that money to buy real estate and then he'll give him a return. So for this question, let's just use the example 10%, I guess. So if someone loans, let's say they loan me money, from their self-directed IRA, and I pay them a 10% return, can they then keep that 10% return and they just have to give the money that they loaned me back to their IRA? Or do they have to put all the money back into their IRA? Everything's going to flow constructively in and out of the IRA. So if that IRA comes on board with us and they loan money to you, mm-hmm. and first off, that's definitely something that we see quite a bit. You know, okay. We see people doing hard money loans, uh, private placements, uh, real estate, all kinds of different alternatives. But Say the client comes on board, they lend you money at 10%, you make the payment, the payment's going to go back to their retirement plan because the retirement plan owns that note investment. So just like if you bought a stock and the stock paid dividends, the same principle applies. It's all going to flow in and out of the retirement plan, which is what the client wants, frankly, because the return is going to be then tax deferred or if it's owned by a Roth account, tax free as opposed to taxable to the individual. Okay. I like how you said it. The the basically the retirement account or whatever owns that money that they're borrowing me. So that retirement account benefits from the interest. Yeah. And when you look at the actual note document that in this hypothetical, you would put together the note, the lender would be the IRA. So if it's John Smith lending you money, it would be the interest group for the benefit of John Smith IRA loaning you money at 10% and you're making payments back to John Smith IRA. Okay. But in this particular case, it, that John Smith's account, who you're holding his money, he gave you a hundred. Let's say you're the investor. Uh-huh. He gave you a hundred thousand. You earned ten percent for him. So then, after the loan, the deal closes, he's got one hundred and ten thousand dollars with you. Yeah, that, he could leave that with you, correct? And then, uh, then the you could do another deal and another deal and another deal with that money. 
It all depends on the structure of the note, and we leave that totally up to the clients or okay. hypothetical. So it doesn't have to come back. It does. The money doesn't have to go back to their traditional uh, investment. It could. House. I could pay him back, and then he could give me the same money right back. Okay. But you're saying it doesn't have to? It, it depends on the note. There's different ways to structure note investments. Sometimes, you know, it's I give you a hundred grand in a year, you give me back a hundred and ten, and then we do a totally separate deal. Sometimes you see rolling notes where they build in language that says basically this can continue to earn interest without being paid back. So I loaned you a hundred grand, you continue to I I'm earning ten percent, but you're not necessarily paying it back in increments of you know. When you dollars. say you, you mean an investor. An investor. An investor. Right, right. Giving him money in the, under the um, self-directed IRA. Sure. And, you know, from our perspective, we don't, because we're not advisors, we don't go in and tell people how to structure their note. If the client comes on board with us and says, I want to loan him money at 10%, here's the note document, fund this investment, we're going to fund the investment. If it was 5% or 10% or secured or unsecured, whether it's a rolling interest or it's going to pay out monthly or whatever the case may be, that's all determined between you and the investor. We're basically just plugging in for the IRA side of the equation. See, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but remember, I remember from uh, when we talked before in your class, you talk, the the rules are pretty severe as far as somebody is directing their own IRA, as far as what they can, what they, how their accounting has to be and who can live there and all that stuff. So, um, so back to this example, which is a more simplified example. If an investor gives, let's call him Adam, just let's call, gives Adam money and he gives him a hundred, Adam a hundred thousand and he earns 10%. So what type of, is the accounting for all that, um, per IRS rules a lot simpler? It would sound like. Yeah. The, the thing that the IRS is primarily concerned about is they, they make rules, um, they basically say you cannot invest with direct lineal family members. Okay, so if it's your IRA, you wouldn't be able to lend money to him because you're his father. Uh, if it was lending money to me, you and I are not related, so that would be fine. They don't want you to do what's called self-dealing, which means do a transaction between your IRA and either yourself, your kids, your parents, or your spouse. Mm -hmm. Those people are called disqualified persons. Okay. So basically you're doing business with unrelated people. But the nature of what you do as long as you're not buying collectibles or life insurance, you can do whatever you want. So I've had people buy, obviously, houses. I've had people lend money, buy stock in private companies, oil and gas investments. We've seen all kinds of unique things that people do with their money. As long as it's not a collectible item or a life insurance product, it's technically doable if it's an investment for investment purposes and you're not dealing with family members. That family member thing is probably the biggest thing to be aware of. You can't have any transactions between yourself, your kids, your parents, your spouse. Um, those people are called disqualified persons. You got to stay away from. They want it to be an arm's length transaction, basically. Essentially, yeah. And, you know, I don't want to think on behalf of the IRS, but I think their thought process there is they're giving you special tax deferred uh, uh, treatment on that retirement plan. They don't want you to essentially double dip. You know, if you bought a property in Columbia and rented it to your daughter, now you're getting the benefit of using your IRA money, but also getting your daughter a free place to live. That would be the type of thing they want to avoid. The thought being, if you're dealing with unrelated people, supply and demand kind of nets out. You're going to do what's best for you. I'm going to do what's best for me. And it just is a cleaner way to do a transaction. I assume that's why the rules are what they are. Okay. That's totally secondary to the fact that the rules are what they are. Sure. You know, talking about IRS code drafted 30 years ago. If I want to loan money out of my self-directed IRA, 
and I loan it to somebody at 10% or whatever the note says, and they buy a piece of property from it with the money, and for whatever reason, they don't pay me back. Sure. Is that what you mentioned, secured versus unsecured? Is that what that comes into play? Right. When you draft a note, uh, just like with any note, it's either going to be a promissory note secured by a promise to repay, or it's going to be secured by something like a mortgage or a deed of trust or uh-huh. a car or whatever the case may be. So the difference being when things go south on a promissory note, you're left with a piece of paper that says, I promise to pay you back. Right. With a secured note, just like a bank, you could foreclose on a property. So you would have a deed of trust or a mortgage on that property. And if you needed to, you could go take back your collateral. And from what, and from your experience, what do you see more, secured or unsecured? Secured, primarily, because um, an unsecured note, just by nature, is a little bit riskier. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I will tell you this. The people that do unsecured lending get a better return, mm-hmm. uh, risk and reward. You know, If you're doing a secured real estate note, um, the, the, the borrower is going to realize that they've given a secured interest in that property and potentially pay you a little bit less of a return. An unsecured note, you know, it's kind of like a credit card versus a mortgage. You know, Uh my mortgage is like 4%. My credit card is like 10% because it's riskier because there's no house backing up the credit card. Same type of thing. But um, we, again, have seen everything. um, I see some deals that look like really good deals. I see other deals that look like maybe I don't understand why they're doing it, but that's part of the nature of self-directed is that the clients is self-directing their money. And dad, when you were talking about kind of having a rolling loan versus like a loan that's paid back each time, maybe that's why they would, you know, here's a hundred thousand. Okay. Give me my 110 back. Okay. Now here's another hundred thousand because that way it would be secured on one piece of property versus like kind of securing it on or unsecuring it on. Sure. Counting on you being a great investor guy. Sure. Right. And so it sounds like maybe that's what more people are doing. Yeah, yeah. Most of our clients, um, and again, it it is all self-directed, so whatever the client wants to do, they can do. But most of our clients that are lending money are doing it secured by real estate because they're working basically like a bank. You know, if you walked into a bank and said, I want to borrow $100,000, they say, great, what's the collateral that you're going to pledge for this $100,000 we are going to give you? Most of our clients that lend money through an IRA look at it the same way. You know, so they're underwriting what the collateral is, the loan value based on that collateral, the rate of return they're going to get. And potentially how creditworthy they think the borrower is. And so that's all part of, it's essentially, lend, it's hard money lending, essentially is what it is. Uh, or private lending, maybe is a better mm-hmm. way to put it. But just running it through the retirement plan instead of doing it with personal cash. So the, we've talked a little bit about these notes. Who writes the note? Do you have to get an attorney? Do you guys have someone who does that? Uh, we don't do it because as a self-directed provider, we can't really provide the substance of the investment. <clears throat> we've got to basically take what the client gives us and then facilitate it. We look at it to make sure it looks good. You don't want to be involved in writing we don't, a bad note um, or something. It creates liability for us, to be honest with you, because uh-huh. if we were to say, here's a sample note document, and then the deal falls apart, and there's a hole in that note document or for whatever reason, that could create liability for us. So, you know, most of our clients work with a title company or an attorney to draft a note. I've seen people, kind of the DYO type people that do it themselves, mm-hmm. and they draft it up on a piece of paper. I mean, whatever you and the borrower are comfortable with, we can facilitate. But the good notes, I say good kind of in quotations, good in my opinion, are really the ones either ter- uh, attorney prepared or title company prepared because those are a little more in line with what you'd see a bank provide. Okay, so two things. First of all, I want to tell all the listeners that we you did provide us with two special documents or 
uh, frequently asked questions document and then kind of just like an understanding self-directed IRAs documents. We're going to put both of those on our website where we post the podcast. So I just wanted to mention that to the listeners. But I was reading something in your frequently asked questions section that as a guy who owns a property management company, I like, but as a guy who I like to think I can do my own property management or whatever, I don't necessarily like what, what's up with this. You can't manage your own property. If you buy real estate through the self-directed IRA, you you don't want to be compensated for doing anything within the IRA. You personally you mm-hmm. should not be compensated. Um, I like to use the term oversee. It's perfectly fine to oversee the investments held in the IRA. Okay. Where, where, where we draw the line on management is, you know, write me a check. I'll put it in my management bank account and then I'll send the money back to Entrust. That's a little bit too close because then you're commingling funds. The other side of it is if you read the code in detail, it says you should not provide, and this is in quotes, goods, services, or facilities between yourself and your retirement plan. So what is goods, services, or facilities? Whatever the IRS deems that to mean. Sure. Uh, it could be argued that being a true property manager on behalf of the property that your IRA owns is providing a service to the retirement plan, which could be a problem. So, you know, standing behind the painter and telling the painter to paint the wall blue is fine. Negotiating the rent with the tenant and picking the tenant or booting the tenant if you need to, whatever the, whatever the situation may be, it's all going to fall on your shoulders. It's your self-directed IRA. You control everything. You just want to make sure that the money and the paperwork flows constructively through the retirement plan. And I think with the management stuff, the, the reason why we put that in the FAQ is we don't want people thinking that the tenant can write them a check. They put it in their bank account and then them send us a check and say, oh, that's from the rent from last month from my tenant. That would be too close. We need constructive receipt okay. of the money and how it flows. So they can write Herman London property management a check, and then we can write. Would we, if we were the property manager, would we just write it directly to Entrust for the your client? It's. I would say if it all comes down, and we could we don't want to dig too deep into this, but basically, if you own or control Herman London, uh-huh. then Herman London by definition is going to be a disqualified entity in the same way that you, your kids, your parents, or your spouse uh-huh, are disqualified. Right. So you want to have, uh, uh, you want to be careful about having transactions that are going to be involved with your IRA and Herman London. I guess I meant if I was managing a property for, oh, for John Smith. Here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. John Smith who has it through you guys. Right. So John Smith, he owns property. He hires you as the management company. That rent check from the tenant goes to you. Uh-huh. You're going to have your little pool of money that you pay expenses, collect uh-huh. income, and then whenever you settle up, it's going to go back to John Smith's IRA at Entrust. Okay. So you're going to send us that. a check okay. at the end of the month or quarter or whatever saying here's the excess you know, gain that we have for John Smith. Okay. Okay. That makes more sense. I think the whole issue to me is is that it it's pretty robust from the standpoint of you can you can be involved. An investor can be involved in this by potentially taking money out of their normal IRA and in, into this situation with you and stand back as a as an investor, or they can remove the money from the IRA, invest it with you, and can be very actively involved in the, you know, the rehabbing and, and everything it is with, with a property. So the, um, it can get it, it can get very complicated or it can get, you know, pretty straightforward it sounds to me like yeah if you hire an unrelated third-party property management company that's a nice clear line in the sand between you and the deal right so you hire herman london herman london does all the stuff that's pretty clear 
some of our clients want to do it themselves. They got to be careful about what they're actually physically doing. And we will give some guidance, but at the end of the day, it all falls back to the code. And it was drafted in 1974 and it hasn't changed in 30 something years. And what the code says is you should not provide goods, services, or facilities between yourself and your retirement plan. So what does that mean? When I give presentations for the real estate investment clubs, they always want like kind of a line in the sand, right? Can I paint the wall? Uh, you know, can I, can I redo the, the back garden? I mean, there is no line in the sand. It's whatever, if the IRS audits you, it's whatever they feel a good service or facility is. So two examples, and I kind of use extreme examples to kind of drive home the point. Let's say you buy a property that has a beat up old roof. It's got an unfenced backyard and an unfinished basement. You would be ill-advised to go in and put on a new roof personally fence the backyard personally and finish that basement personally because that's very definitively a service that you're providing to the IRA. Now, if you show up on a Tuesday morning to pick up the rent check and you see a big bag of trash in the front yard and you go pick up the trash and throw it in the dumpster, that's not really providing a service. That's just keeping your neighbors happy by picking up the trash in the front yard. If you don't pick it up, who's going to pick it up? So, you know, the, the, the best analogy that I've heard, and this is my old boss out in Colorado, said that you can stand behind the guy that's doing the work point your finger and tell them what to do, but don't actually pick up the hammer and do it yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So tell someone, I want to knock down that wall and I want you to knock it down. I'm going to pay out of my IRA to knock down that wall, but don't pick up the hammer yourself and start knocking down the wall because then technically you're, you're providing a service between That's yourself so interesting. and your because even if you Even if you don't pay yourself to, to paint that wall or whatever, it's still a service. It is, and th th there's two reasons why that's important important or why that's problematic, I should say. One is that good service or facilities I talked about a couple times here. The other is that you don't want what you're doing to be viewed as contributing value to the IRA uh, because the only way to make a viable contribution to a retirement plan is in the form of cash. You write a check to your IRA custodian for the IRA contribution mm -hmm. and it's documented. So you can imagine if you had a beat up old house built in 1954 and you went in there, gutted it, did a bunch of work, and now it's worth 10000 more than when you started, that's essentially contributing value. Your sweat equity is increasing the value of that property. Well, Uncle Sam would look at that and say, basically, that's a contribution. Whether you call it a contribution or not, you did something and now you have a higher value in your retirement plan, that's that's a contribution. So that's problematic. Now, people bring up the question, how would the IRS know, right? If I go in there and I, you know, knock down a couple walls or painting, how, how would they know? We we don't get into that. Because I don't want to get into that That's either. Uncle yeah. Sam stuff. I mean, if the, the limited amount of time that I've had dealing with clients that have been audited, which doesn't happen very often, but I've seen a few, has kind of created a, a healthy fear of the IRS. Uh -huh. You know, they come in and they accuse you of being guilty, that you have to prove you're not guilty on your dime. Uh, and, you know, if they say, prove to me that you didn't work on the property, really the only way to do that is that if there were improvements is to show invoices and right. show that, you, you know, somebody did that. Otherwise, they're going to assume you did that work yourself. And those invoices have to be from not your father, your brother, your wife either, right? That's I, correct. I can't hire my dad to go and paint the wall either. You mentioned brother. Brothers technically are okay to do business with because no. if you look at the code, it doesn't go horizontal. It just goes vertical. It's direct lineal ascendants and descendants. So it's your parents, grandparents, children, grandchildren, spouses of your children, and your spouse. So basically what you're telling me is I can tell my brother Nick to start doing some work over He, he needs to start doing the work, exactly. Because, you know, you, you can't have anyone else do it and in the family. He invoice so. you. That's right. He does have to invoice me, but it doesn't have to be fair market value. Yeah. There you go. Okay. And then I could work on his 
self-directed IRA property, I guess. And one of the things I tell people a lot of times, uh, a lot of the do-it-yourself type folks get a little bummed out when they find out they can't do the work themselves. And I understand that. But again, you're kind of playing in, in their sandbox. You have to play by their rules. Mm-hmm. But you're not completely shelving all of your knowledge of of, retire, uh, of real estate. So, you know, if you know who the best roofer is, the best plumbing guy, the best floor guy, the best painter, you're still going to hire the best people and maybe even get good deals if you've got a relationship with them. That's supply and demand. You know, if somebody's going to paint my house for two grand, they paint your house for 900 because they're your buddy. Well, good for you, you know, but just don't go out there and paint your house yourself because that would be problematic. I'm, I'm thinking about the different, you know, alternatives are how movement can go in and out. When in this particular example of the hundred thousand and you and, and you invest with somebody and you get the 10,000 back. So basically our by law, by RS rule, you don't really ever have to take that money. That hundred and ten thousand could sit in their account with 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 you. It could it could sit there forever, really, right? Would it wouldn't earn any money? No, it or, doesn't. We don't really do anything with it, and you, you know, it, there's no problem with it sitting there. It's an FDIC insured money market, and it'll sit there as long as you want it to sit there. Generally speaking, clients want to get their money working for them. So if right, they're done exactly. with if they're done with us. You know, if they move over money and they do a deal, the deal goes well and they get their money back and they say, you know, interest, it's been great, but I'm ready to go back to the market and put it back in stocks. Well, then we close out the account. I don't okay. have any hard feelings when I close out accounts. They don't need our service anymore. Okay. You know, it's it's very much of a need-based niche business that we operate in. And uh, we're, we're holding the stuff that other companies don't. And frankly, we don't do the stuff that other companies do. So in this particular example, if you, and I'm being very simplistic, I realize, but they, someone puts $100,000 with you, they loan it to somebody, they earn 10 and it comes back and it sits there. So six months later, they make a decision. Um, they find that someone else they want to invest in. They could invest, you know, uh, 50000 with someone else and then that, residual 60 sits there yeah but they could move 50,000 out to this other investor and 20 out to another investor really absolutely so, yeah or they could leave all 110 to sit there for the rest of their life and just not earn any interest on it or it, whatever. W- it wouldn't earn any money you said something about it would be a it's FDIC insured. It sits in a cash account yeah, basically cash yeah so earning 0.1% yeah i mean functionally you know, any, and again, we're not financial advisors. You talk to any financial advisor, though, they're going to tell you don't just sit on cash because cash is going to be eaten away by inflation. Mm-hmm. So you got to do something with the money. So, you know, if an investor was done doing alternative investments, I we wouldn't actively tell them to move their account. But if they called me up and said, hey, what do you think? Should I keep it or leave it? Mm-hmm. I'd say there's plenty of people in the St. Louis market that can wealth manage for you. Wealth, uh, right, yeah, right. I mean, it is. you can definitely find someone to take that money over. So do most people, when it comes back with you, then move it back to that or leave it there for future deals? It really depends. I mean, a lot of my clients are, are real estate people. You know, I'm not, I'm not convincing people to buy real estate. I'm basically convincing people that have money in a retirement plan that already want to buy real estate that they can do it through their retirement plan. Okay. So my average investor, somebody that comes on board, I mean, just I hear it every day when people call. They say, man, I've been buying real estate for 30 years. I love real estate. I know real estate. I'm not really comfortable with the stock market. I want to put some money into real estate, but I want to do it through my retirement plan. So they're already thinking, you know, if I do deal one and deal one pays off, I'm looking for deal two. But sometimes, you know, they do deal one, deal one's done, they move their money back to Scott Trade or whatever. I mean, they can close out their account with us. Okay, let me ask you 
an embarrassing question. All right. Okay. How are you making money on me putting a hundred thousand dollars in with yeah. interest? We charge fees to hold investments. So uh standard admin fee is three hundred dollars per asset per year. So you move money over, you buy one property, you're paying us about three hundred bucks a year. You buy two properties about six hundred bucks a year. We have transaction fees uh to actually acquire the real estate, which can range anywhere from a hundred dollars to one hundred and seventy five. Uh, and then we have a setup cost of $50. So average investor comes on board. They buy one investment. They pay us 50 to open the account, but $175 to do the closing, and then $299 a year to hold their asset. So you could do the math in your head. I'm not dealing with you know one or two clients here or dealing with a lot of volume. Uh, we have a lot of activity, a lot of transactions, and and we make it up in volume. Um, it's It's a different model. Then your wealth management. I mean, your wealth manager is going to take you out to lunch. They're going to ask about your kids. They're going to talk about the Cardinals. We're more transactional in nature. It's more like, okay, I want to do this transaction. I need an administrator or custodian to hold it. How do I get from where I am over to you to do this deal? And we're doing very high volume. I mean, my own, my office here in St. Louis, anywhere ranging from 10 on a 10 accounts in a week on a slow week to 15 or 16 accounts on a busy week of new people signing up, coming on board, moving over money to make an investment. So that's every week. So that adds up. So we're making 300 bucks a year per asset, but we have a lot of assets and a lot of clients and a lot of transactions. So it adds up. Interesting. Cool. So we kind of have to wrap it up here where this is, this will now be our longest podcast show right. that we've had. <laughs> uh, but I, I want to give you a chance to, A, give your information, your contact information, that type of thing, which we'll also put on our company website, hermanlondon.com. Please go ahead and give all that information now. Yeah, absolutely. And I encourage people to call us uh, because of the niche that we operate in. It's just not a lot of good information out there about what we do. Right. I spend most of my you time. You know it. So yeah, I just call you. spend time talking to people about it, and I enjoy it. I get excited about it. Uh, my direct dial at uh, my office here in Chesterfield is 636 Six eight one one three one two. That's six three six six eight one thirteen twelve. Uh, if you want to check out our website, it's theentrustgroup.com. Uh, T H E E N T R U S T G R O U P dot com. And my email is p hagen at theentrustgroup.com. That's so p h a g e n. Yes, p h a g e n at theentrustgroup.com. And anything that we didn't ask, anything that we should have asked. I mean, we could, obviously we could talk forever. My dad and I love talking about this kind of stuff. So, any any major point that we missed or should? No, I, I think the only thing is, you know, obviously, um, if this is something you're interested in, call us up. We'll talk about it, give you the information. Go to the Learning Center on our website. There's a lot of information there. The one thing I do want to mention though is, if you think you're going to buy a property through the IRA. You want to get your ducks in a row before that deal is ready to go. I've talked to some people that say, well, I've got a, a property under contract. It's going to close in a week. How do I get it into my IRA? At that point in the game, it's too late. You really okay. need to get the account set up, maybe move over a little bit of money so that we can put the contract in the name of the IRA, not in your name personally. So you don't want the card in front of the horse, so to speak. You want to make sure that you're planning accordingly and getting everything set up. We can open an account within one day. We can get the money over within a couple of days, and then we can pull the trigger on the investment whenever you're ready. But just plan ahead. Uh, we'd rather be prepared than be reactive at the last minute because that, that's a tricky situation to handle. Perfect. I'm glad you came on. Thank you very much, Patrick, and thank you very much, Larry. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Thank you. This was great. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, and so we might want you on in the future. I'll give you a call. 
I'm local. I'll be here. All right. Thanks very much, everyone. And we look forward to having you on our next podcast, St. Louis Realtor Podcast. Thanks. Take care.